um, from Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. (laughs) So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did this because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, through the, not the, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. What a passage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to this passage Lord, as a people who need to hear your word, who are weary from the weak, uh, weary from our struggles with sin, weary from the world, and Lord, we need to see Jesus. So Lord, would you show up to us during this time of your preached word? Would you minister to our hearts? And would you make us more like you, Lord? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, probably you noticed that this story sounds familiar. Did you notice that? Somewhere towards the beginning of summer, we looked at Genesis chapter 12, where there's a very similar story about Abraham and Sarah. They were Abram and Sarai at that point, right? And they were in Egypt, but kind of the same things happened, right? He showed up and told Pharaoh, essentially, this is my sister, Pharaoh takes her as his wife. Then it comes out that that's not really the case. And there's kind of this kind of weird, confusing ending, right? That's Genesis 12. We've already preached that. Now we're at Genesis 20. It's the same story. Why is this in here? 
why is it, first of all, why, why does this appear in Scripture? That's a question that a lot of the world asks. By the way, if you look up this passage on Wikipedia, that source of all great information, what you will find is a survey of what the world thinks about this passage and why it's in here. And, and some of the things that it says, for example, are things like this. Well, you know, the events of Genesis were handed down orally for thousands of years, probably. And so at some point, you know, when you play the game of telephone, you're passing things down orally. The stories get mixed up and kind of changed and things get placed out of order. And so probably what happened with this passage was, you know, somewhere along the line, there was some sort of way in which this was passed down in which it told the story about Pharaoh in the wrong place, like late in life instead of early in life. And, and that's why it was included. I don't think much of that opinion. <laughs> Because I believe that God inspired his word. I believe that this is uh, not a story that we should put ourselves over, but a story that we should put ourselves under, right? That God gave us this for a reason and he preserved it perfectly. Um, moreover, there's a lot of repetition in the story of Genesis. It's very poetic when you really get down to the brass tacks of the story. It's not surprising at all when you consider the construction of the way Genesis was written that there would be a repeated story. It's almost as though Genesis is pounding a message into our skull. Repetition is the mother of learning. In fact, when I worked at St. David's School, the week prior to exams, we always had a review week where essentially we would go back over all of the lessons that we went through throughout the year in order to help the students, right, prepare for the final exam. There is, by the way, if you've read ahead, an exam coming for Abraham, a final exam, if you will, that he will pass. And this story, I think, is meant, I think God allowed these events to happen in his life in some way to prepare him for that. But more importantly, I think he put this story in the construction of the story of Genesis so that the original audience and this audience would hear this story again because there's, a very, there's some very important lessons that are included in this story for us. And I don't think, another thing you'll find on Wikipedia is that you know, this story is repeated in here because the author of Genesis really wanted to stress the importance of not claiming that your wife is your sister. <clears throat> I think that's right. You shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> this is my wife, by the way. <laughs> she is my sister in Christ, but, you know, okay. This is my wife, right? We shouldn't go around doing this sort of kind of deception, what Abraham is doing. That is right, but there's a deeper kind of lesson here. And I, and I, I, I see this lesson as kind of coming in three parts, and that's our outline for this morning. <clears throat> the first lesson <laughs> that this is meant to drive into the original audience and into us and also into Abraham's skull is that God's plan is more bigger than you. And yes, that's grammatically incorrect. That's so you'll remember it. <laughs> God's plan is more bigger than you. Secondly, God's plan involves you. That's in here, we'll see it. And then finally, God's plan is poetically beautiful even in its blessings and curses. Those are the three lessons that are here, that are here again, right, repeated from this narrative that happened earlier and this second event 
that is included for our benefit so that we will remember God's plan is more bigger than you. God's plan involves you and God's plan is poetic even in its blessings and curses. Okay, first of all, God's plan is more bigger than you. Amen? God's plan is more bigger than you. I have had the blessing of seeing that by being here. I kind of get into my little world in our church in downtown and I think that's everything that God's doing. God is doing more than what he's doing in my life and in the life of my church. He's doing what he's doing here and in churches all around the world. God is doing a very big thing. And oftentimes we think like, hey, it's up to me to kind of accomplish the things that God is doing. I feel that as a pastor, oftentimes it's like, I've got to get this done. I've got to get it done. And God doesn't want us to think that. God is doing this work through us, sometimes in spite of us, as exampled in this story, right? And he will not let his promises, his work, be thwarted by anything. God's plan is bigger than you. It's more bigger than you. First of all, I just like let's just follow the story and look at this, Okay? Abraham shows up in this country and he says, later he explains, I, you know, the reason I did this was I kind of like encountered all these people and I saw no fear of God in them. Can you relate to that? You ever find yourself in a place and you're just kind of like, I am amongst a bunch of godless heathens. Lord help me, right? And you think, man, I am, I am the only light in this dark place and uh, I better preserve myself. I need to take action in order to preserve myself. That's what Abraham does here, right? He, he sees himself in this dangerous setting as he perceives it, right? And he, and he says, man, I'm gonna get extinguished. They're gonna kill me. They're gonna kill Sarah. The promise is going to be thwarted by these dark, terrible people that I find myself amongst, right? There's no sense of God is at work God's sovereignty, God's power over these people, it's all essentially a survival instinct that, that drives him in this narrative. I'm surrounded by dark things. I must preserve myself. Everything in the whole story of the Bible up to this point has been about how we cannot do that, <laughs> that we must depend upon God for that. God has been trying to hammer that into Abraham's head from the beginning of his story, and yet he rejects that at this moment and goes back and reverts to exactly what he was doing like at the very beginning of the story when he first gets the promise. And I, I want you to just sit in that for a minute. God put this story in here twice for a couple of reasons. One, to remind you that like, it's not up to you to protect you. He's got you. You may be surrounded by the darkest things in the, in the world, but the darkness of the world compares not to his light. And the light he has put in you is brighter than anything that the world has encountered. It's the light of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go to battle in order to defend that or defend yourself. He will fight for you. In fact, you read the whole Old Testament again and again and again and again. God shows up and fights for his people. The victories are almost always miraculous because God loves to do things that remind us that, man, it was only me. This morning we were praying for the service. I love that you guys do that, you elders. It's such a beautiful time. Um, that you've invited me into. And your elders were praying and they were talking about some of the things that God has done in this context. And, he, and they were saying, you know, this couldn't have happened apart from God. We've experienced that in our church. We were in this, this big, huge warehouse in downtown, right? 
big, huge warehouse, had lots of space for lots of people. And um, we were trying to buy a place, and we found this dumpy old place on the north side of town. And we thought, you know, is God calling us to buy this? We don't know. And in December uh, to January of 2020, we bought it. Well, the warehouse had no parking, no outdoor space, right? There would have been no way for our congregation to meet outside. We bought this building with no plans of worshiping there. We were going to worship at Broughton High School. And then the virus came. And we found ourselves with everything that we needed in order to continue to serve Christ in downtown. And we look at that and we go, we didn't think about that. God did that. These were the sorts of stories your elders were sharing because God is doing things like that in this context. We don't need to protect ourselves. We have the God of the universe who fights for us. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. We have the God of the universe who is always at work in and through us. And so, even if you find yourself in a place where their fear of God is not among the people you're around, which, by the way, is the place that you are called, <laughs> um, God's got this. It's a part of your review for your exam. Remember that. The other thing that I think it's in here for is you notice, like, Abraham did the same sin early in life and the same sin late in life, <laughs> right? He's never going to learn, right? Like, you look at this and you go, come on, man. <laughs> Didn't you learn last time? Didn't you learn that this was not the way to do this? Um, what he does, by the way, is not only does he take matters into his own hands, he's not being righteous. That's another lesson that's here, by the way. God never calls you to defend yourself in a sinful way. Oftentimes, we make that mistake, right? Let's fight fire with fire. These godless people are coming at us. Let's go right back at them in the kind of way that they come at us, right? No, <laughs> we are different than the world. We fight differently than the world um, because we have a God who is totally other than this world. And he's called us to be a light to that. Abraham doesn't do that. He plays the world's game in order to defeat the world. Doesn't work out. And it's the same thing that he did early in life and he's doing it late in life. And that's to remind you of this. Some of us, we struggle with patterns of sin. And by some of us, I mean all of us. <laughs> That's why every week we come in and we confess sin, right? It's not surprising that this happened in Abraham's life if you look at your life just for a moment with any kind of like honesty and integrity. You struggle with the same sins over and over again. If we were writing a story of your life, it would not be hard for us to select two stories where the exact same kind of sinful patterns were identified and, and acted out, right? God wanted his people to see that Father Abraham, the founder of the faith, this great man of faith, he struggled with patterns of sin, just like we do. Do you see that? So if you're here this morning and you're kind of wondering, do I belong here? I didn't just sin once. These, all these other people, they seem nice. They probably make mistakes, but then they course correct. I don't do that. I struggle with sin over and over and over again. Then guess what? You're just like Father Abraham. And God wants you <laughs> to see that even Father Abraham's rep repetition of a ridiculous sin, by the way, which many of us struggle with repetition of ridiculous sins, didn't thwart his plan. So Abraham's solution 
is to lie, to deceive, to go back to his own Sid patterns. The consequences of this pattern are that his wife winds up in a harem with another king. The promise of the, that this child would come through them is threatened by the fact that they're separated, right? And the visibility of God's work and salvation is obscured. Our patterns of sin, while God works in spite of them, they do threaten everything. Do you see that? Like, they are terrible. They're awful. They're things that we should avoid and, and not do. Um, but God intervenes. Abraham does almost nothing right in this story. It's God who comes in and fixes things, right? He reveals himself to Abimelech directly. He prevents Abimelech from sinning in a way that would have compromised the integrity of the promise if Abimelech and Sarah had gotten together, right? It'd be all kinds of questions of where did this child come from? You see? He prevents that and he puts in Abimelech this message, this rebuke to go to Abraham to course correct, to change things. Um, and then Abraham, when he's rebuked, notice he still doesn't do the right thing right away. He's got all these excuses. <laughs> Did you notice that? Like, how typical of us is that? <laughs> like, we just, like, well, she is kind of my sister, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I, I was scared. You guys are kind of terrible people, <laughs> you know? Like, he's just kind of passive. Don't do that right? Don't make excuses for your sin. Own your sin and repent. Eventually, Abraham gets there, right? But it takes quite a lot. All right, so God's plan is more bigger than you, right? No matter how many times you've sinned, God is still at work. Our patterns of sin cannot thwart the promises of God, even though they threaten everything, because God is at work and he's bigger than our sin. I, um, I don't think we get our heads around this very often. Like a true sense of forgiveness, a true sense of, man, even though I've messed up again and again and again and again, God is still at work, um, is such a beautiful thing. Like I love the name of your church, Christ Our Hope. Because there is no hope in us we would sin again and again. And yet, every Sunday, repeatedly, in the same way that this message is repeated in Scripture, again and again, that hope is proclaimed here because we need to hear it again and again, that God is bigger. God's plan of salvation is greater than our sin. I, um, I sometimes talk to my kids and you know, they, they say things like, you know, church is kind of boring because it kind of says the same thing over and over again. And sometimes I, I want to say to my kids, well, you know, you're kind of boring because you keep sinning in the same way again and again. We had one son yesterday, goodness sake. <laughs> Katie's laughing. Every, like every hour, every hour he was sinning in exactly the same way and we kept course correcting and, and rebuking him and challenging him. But again and again and again and again he sinned and we kept confronting him with that and reminding him of the gospel and trying to get him to own that and believe that and trusting Christ and change. And again and again and again, and it's such a picture of us. Never give up your namesake, Christ our hope. 
Always proclaim the hope because it needs to be proclaimed again and again and again. And don't get bored with it. It is the message that is, um, it is better than any message that could ever be proclaimed. We'll get to that in a moment. That's point three. All right. So that's our first point. Second point. So first point, God's plan is more bigger than you. Second point is God's plan includes you. Um, there's something curious about this passage, something very unique. It's the first time that the word prophet is used in Scripture. In verse 7, right, it calls uh, Abraham a prophet. Now, we've talked about priests in here. We talked about it when we talked about Melchizedek, and we talked about priests. Um, I know I talked about it when we talked about Abraham interceding for Sodom. Do you remember that? You remember I, I kind of framed um, priesthood in the category of a, a courtroom, right? Because I think oftentimes we, we don't think about it in terms of kind of like it being this representative role, but it is. The priest, of course, represents um, the people before God. That's why priests go and offer sacrifices. They're like plea bargains, you know, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's, what he, that's what priests are doing. They're, they're, they go and they pray for the people, right? They're going before God, in order to represent the people in the hopes of some sort of reconciliatory outcome, right? That's what priests do. And of course, nobody did that to the fullest extent except for Christ. And in the Old Testament, you see this problem with priests. Like there was a big problem. Priests kept going into the Holy of Holies and dying because they were unclean. Their problem was because they were going from an unclean people represented before a clean and perfect God who consumed imperfection, okay? So that's the priest. What's a prophet? The prophet is God's man in the courtroom. It's God's lawyer, God's representative. In the Old Testament, you see prophets constantly going to people, rebuking them, challenging them, proclaiming kind of the the promise of God and, and calling people to faithfulness to that promise, right? Over and over and over again. Prophets are essentially God's lawyers, well, they had the same problem as the priests, though. <laughs> their, their destination, they, it just worked differently. They started with a perfectly clean God whom they were supposed to be the messenger for and then went to an unclean people, right? You see that in Isaiah. When Isaiah is called to be a prophet, what is the first thing he says? Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? God has to take a coal and put it into his mouth to cleanse his lips because it's incredible what a prophet is. Like, you're going to go and speak for, for a perfect, holy, righteous God as an unclean sinner? That's incredible. Okay, so that's what a prophet is. And it's the first time that it's talked about in, in the Old Testament here. Um, and, and I think, you know, we think about it in terms mostly backwards. Most of the time when I say, hey, this person's a prophet, immediately you think about like a fortune teller. Like they proclaim the future. And there is a component to prophetic like words that are future telling, for sure. But you, you think about it, it's more like this. It's, it's based on what God is doing and that prophet proclaiming what God's doing. So think about it in legal terms. Like you probably signed a, if you rented an apartment ever in your life, you signed an a, agreement, a covenant, right? That you were going to kind of agree to rent this space, pay a certain amount, right? And, and they were gonna give you the space, right? It would be a fortune telling incident for an attorney of the apartment company to show up and tell you, hey, listen, you haven't paid your rent. You're going to get evicted, <laughs> right? They're foretelling the future based on the agreement, right? And that's what prophets did in the Old Testament. They were always telling the future um, based on the covenant promises 
that God had given the people and the agreement that they had entered into in the covenant. Do you see? That's what a prophet is. And they were often kind of like accompanied by all this great power. And that's another thing that people think about when they think about prophets is they're, they're miracle workers, right? You think about like uh, Ezekiel, right? Um, you think about uh, all the things that the prophets did in the Old Testament, calling down fire from heaven, right? You think about uh, uh, raising people from the dead. That's the sort of things that prophets did, right? So they are accompanied by power because they're representing God's word and God's word is always accompanied by power. God's going to show that his word is true through these powerful means. Okay, so that's a primer on prophets in the Old Testament. That was kind of away from our text, but you need to understand that. It's incredible that Abraham is just declared to be the the first prophet, right? This is an incredible thing. The original audience would have gone, wow, he's a prophet. And here's the other thing that's really incredible. He is not acting like a prophet in this passage. There's somebody who's acting like a prophet in this passage, and it's not Abraham. He's acting like the opposite of a prophet, right? Notice, he's called the prophet, but is God talking directly to him in this passage? Is he going and rebuking wrong in this passage? Is he bestowing blessings or curses in this passage? Not till the very end. Through the whole story, it's Abimelech who's acting like the prophet. God speaks to him. God then like calls him to kind of like act in ways that bless Abraham and rebuke Abraham. Abimelech is the one acting like a prophet in this passage and the irony of that would have struck the original audience. They would have gone, wow, Father Abraham really messed this up. God just called him a prophet, this great incredible title. Like he gets to represent God to the world. What an incredible honor as a sinner. And yet, instead of doing that, he hides sinfully. He deceives others. And it's the pagan Philistine, that's where Gerar is, Philistine king who comes to him and calls him out on it. Wow. That's really bad, Father Abraham. That's really bad. The bottom line here is, I think that this story is here to remind the people of Israel who were essentially God's representative. They were the nation that was very prophetic-like, right? They were supposed to be the light in the world, like someone else, by the way. They were the prophets. And God's saying here, like, look, I don't need my prophets to be faithful in order for the promise to go forward. You know, this sets up an expectation of God to speak through all sorts of things, and he does, right? Just in the, in the books of Moses, God speaks through a bush. God speaks through a donkey. We can get this sense, right, that we're the prophets, like God's gonna speak through us, but like when we misbehave, when we're wrong, God doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us to work out his promises. He can speak through anything. Jesus says that if we don't cry out like honor to his name, the very rocks will do it. But do you sense like there's this incredible privilege that exists in being God's prophet? Notice that the fact that Abraham is God's prophet affords all of these like actions that Abimelech does in response to finding this out. 
he's horrified at what has happened. And he goes so far as to like shower blessings upon Abraham because he is labeled as God's prophet, even though he's not acting like it. Um, so here's the application for us in this. Listen to this. In the New Testament, who's the prophet? This is the Sunday school answer. Shout it out. Jesus, good. You're, you're passing the exam. Jesus is the greatest prophet. Um, but who else? Oh, now this is harder. Who else are prophets in the New Testament? John the Baptist? Yep, sure. Who else? I'll give you a hint. You know some of them. Say it. The disciples? Did you know the disciples? <laughs> I named my kids after the disciples. I know some disciples. Who else? I can't hear you. This is a review session, remember? Us! Thank you. Us. Look to your left. Look to your right. Greet a prophet. They're right here. We're all prophets. Joel 2 says that in the new covenant, essentially, uh, young men will dream dreams, old men will have visions, women will proclaim like the word of the, God, of the Lord. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples and all believers. Essentially, you have the Spirit. You have the prophetic gift. Can you tell me about the future? Have you received God's word? Can you tell me about the future? Can you tell others about the future? Yes, you can. You are prophets. Congratulations. We talk a lot because of Martin Luther about the priesthood of all believers, but we also believe in the prophethood of all believers. We are a nation of prophets. We are meant to proclaim God's word. And often we act like Abraham. But we have the privilege of not acting like Abraham, of instead proclaiming the promise, being visible in the way that we live our lives. And so God's plan is more bigger than you. He doesn't need you. If you don't do it, the rocks will do it. And that'd probably be easier for him, actually. <laughs> because the rocks aren't as sinful as you are. <laughs> right? The bushes are fine. The donkeys are great. They're great to work with. It's the, the stubborn humans that are tough to actually get to do the will of God, to proclaim his word. But God's so great that he's chosen you. The weakest. <laughs> <laughs> and that's us. So God's plan's more bigger than us, but God's plan involves us. Praise God that not only does he do the work of redemption in spite of us, he incorporates and involves us in it. You guys are responsible for spreading the message of hope and his kingdom in spite of your regular patterns of sin that you have just like Father Abraham. Do you see? God's plan's more bigger than you, and it involves you. And both of those things are great. But our last point is this. Last point is that God's curses and blessings are all poetic. God's promise, it's poetic. You know, I was thinking as we were singing, oftentimes in Presbyterian circles, we love this part. Like we love the, the preaching of the word. That's what we have valued historically. You know, and you see that through all of kind of like 
our scholars and all of our great preachers of old. You know, you think about like John Calvin, right? Really strong on the, the value of God's word. You think of Knox, you know, all of the reformers were real big on God's word. But you know what? We also sing. Do you know why we sing? Because God's word isn't, his promise isn't just an intellectual fact. It's a work of art. Calvin said that the reason that we sing is because we sing truth into our hearts. The Christian life is a musical. <laughs> Do you see that? The world is out there slogging along, kind of, and they, you, know, you, you, you watch a musical, right? Do you ever watch a musical and you go, this is ridiculous, that would never happen, right? It's like they're, they're selling newspapers and newsies and all of a sudden they just start singing because it's so much fun. That would never happen, right? But here's the thing. God's salvation and his work within us is such that we live a life of musicals. Like we're going along in our life and we encounter a, a reminder of the forgiveness and grace of God and we sing, great is thy faithfulness. <laughs> because we recognize it's not our faithfulness, it's his. And you know what? The only way that we can like give that the glory that it's due, like we can't just talk about it, we gotta sing about it together, everybody, Right? There is a poetic beauty to what God is doing in this story. The fact that it is repeated, that Abraham sinned in this way. But notice also the blessings and curses. Notice the, the, the fact that Abraham is being a terrible prophet. And so God calls a Philistine king to call him back to his prophetic role. And by the end of the story, he's praying, the, the right prophet is praying for the Philistines which was what was supposed to happen in the first place, right? Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to all nations. He was supposed to show up and not write off these godless heathens. He was supposed to be a light to them, which is instructive of us. We're not called to write off the heathens. We're supposed to pray blessings upon them. Do you see that? And notice this too. What is it that he prays and then the result is? What is his like magical act, his prophetic magical act? This is the one thing that he does that's, that's appropriate for a prophet. There's a miracle performed here. What happens at the end of the story? They have children. The Philistines start having children. What have Abraham and Sarah struggled with? Having children. You ever start preaching the gospel to somebody and get halfway through the conversation and realize you're preaching to yourself? It happens to me all the time. I tell people all the time, I think God's called me to be a preacher because I think I need more reminding of the gospel than you do. Because when I sit down with somebody and I start talking about the gospel, about the salvation, the beauty of the riches of the glory that we have in Christ, at some point I often realize hey, this applies to me. And I start to believe it. God, in giving Abraham and Sarah this episode of their life, even in the curses that he poured out, do you, do you see how poetically beautiful it is that he prevented the Philistines from having children so that Abraham had to pray for them in order to do it? It reinforced to Abraham and to Sarah, God who has closed the wombs of the Philistines and who by our prayer 
is releasing it is capable of doing that with us. I'm telling you, if you haven't experienced it, start actually exercising your prophetic role. Start going to people that are like in really dark places and preaching the hope of the gospel. And about halfway through it, you'll realize that that exercise wasn't for them, it was for you. And you'll start to believe the gospel more. The other thing that I want you to see, the poetic beauty of this, is like the whole idea of having children, right? This promise that comes through bearing children, like there's, there's a metaphor there, right? Like life. Like it's through this coming child, going all the way back to the promise in, 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 Gen- in the very beginning of Genesis, once they get kicked out of the garden, is that there's gonna be a child who crushes the head of the serpent, right? It's a promise of ongoing life as opposed to the curse of death. You see? Abraham and Sarah, in preaching this promise of life to the Philistines, are more in place of appreciating it for themselves. God's not just writing history on the life of Abraham and Sarah. He's writing poetry. And brothers and sisters, I want you to grapple with, if nothing else, from this summer... (laughs) Know this, God's not just writing history in your life, he's writing poetry. There will be a song that comes out of your suffering because of the redemptive work that God does. You know, and that's really hard, by the way, just pastorally, when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of hardship, it's hard to see the release of that psalm. But God always brings us there. And there's a sense in which, you know, I, I used to think about eternity was like God's gift to me so that I could like live forever and do whatever I wanted. <laughs> more and more, I think eternity was a requirement of the gospel because what God does in salvation is so beautiful. That's how much glorification and celebration is required in response to it. That's how amazing grace ends, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's because the work of salvation that God's doing is not so incre- just incredible, it's so beautiful that it requires that. I think that God wanted the people of Israel to see the beauty of what he was doing in Abraham's life, to reassure them that as they were going through the hardship of struggling with their repeated sins, their repeated abandonment of God, their complete struggles to be faithful, that there would be a way in which God worked poetically, even through their sin, to bring about his good purposes. You know, Genesis ends with the story of one who's sold into slavery by his brothers. And he says, to them when he meets them. What you've meant for evil, God's meant for good. God's working in you, brothers and sisters, even in the dark places, even in the hard places of your life, to bring about his glorious poetic salvation. He's doing that because he's a great God. It's not up to you, but it will be your joy and privilege to celebrate it for eternity. When I was um, 
an intern, and I'll close with this. When I was an intern at, at our church, um, it was called Christ Our Comfort back then, but now it's called Christ the King. We got uh, connected with this crack house across the street. And um, I had been in seminary all of a year. And at RTS, Tim can attest to this, they require you to lead a small group as a kind of practical part of your kind of graduation requirements. So we all got together as a bunch of seminary students and led small groups with each other in order to meet that requirement like in our first year. And, you know, like check, you know, check the box. But as an intern, I was working this su- in the summer at the church and they said, hey, we've got this crack house that we've connected with, you're in. They want a Bible study. I go over there and the first, the first time we're leading it, like I glance on the ground and there's a pendant with some sort of satanic symbol on it. <laughs> and everybody in the room is struggling with drug addiction. And I think, you know, that seminary small group didn't really prepare me for this. <laughs> but I'll tell you, that was the best small group that I've ever been a part of. Because God worked in those lives of those people in such a way to reveal to me what he was doing in my life. I identify more with them than any of the seminary students that I did the study with because we're all addicts. None of us have any hope except for Christ. And those people got that. And God gave me that Bible study as a gift. At the time, I thought it was a curse. (laughs) But as a gift to more completely need the gospel into my life. Where is he doing that in your life? Where are the hardships, the hard places, the dark places that he's brought you, where he's called you to proclaim the gospel, and in doing so, he's needing it more deeply into your heart? Look for the poetry. It's there, Christ our hope. He's writing it in your life. Let's pray.